Um, I'm Dr. Charles Argoff. I am a neurologist by training. I'm faculty at Albany Medical College. I'm a professor in that department. I direct our uh, pain center there, um, and I also direct our pain fellowship. Um, and we train people how to become pain specialists. Um, so this is a, a topic that uh, I was asked to cover. Um, it's certainly seen how many people see Lyme disease. And I think one of the frustrating aspects of seeing Lyme disease is proving that someone has Lyme disease first and in, in later that the uh, subsequent symptoms are directly related to the infection or to other issues. I know that somebody in the room is going to tell me they send their, all their antibiotics to the only lab in California or somewhere else that does the only, you know, every patient's come in and say that they've heard about this lab and otherwise I think that's still controversial and I'm not going to get into that controversy because that's not what I do. Um, but I'd be happy to review with you um, pain that's been associated and documented in people who have Lyme disease and other spiroketal infections and stick to the facts as we know them. These are my disclosures. Um, I don't think that you'll have any uh, concerns. I do a lot of consulting for research purposes and uh, other reasons, um, and I hope that you don't find that I've um, uh, influenced this talk in any way. So I hope that the end, by the end of this talk, um, we will all be able to recognize uh, the spiroketal infections that can be associated with acute and chronic pain, including Lyme disease and others, describe acute painful conditions that are associated with Lyme disease and other spiroketal infections, and list chronic pain conditions associated with Lyme disease and other spiroketal infections. So what's a spirochete? Um, so it can be spelled in a, a number of different ways. Um, a spirochete is any of a group of spiral-shaped bacteria some of which are serious pathogens for humans. So these are, can, are organisms that can cause diseases such as Lyme disease, syphilis, and relapsing fever. Examples of spirochetes include um, treponema, Borrelia, and Leptospira. And Leptospira is not very common in human beings, and there's very little literature whatsoever on Leptospira causing acute or chronic pain. And so my presentation today will focus on acute and chronic pain associated with Lyme disease and syphilis. So since many of you already take care of people with Lyme disease, you know that this is a multi-system disorder. Anybody know why it's called Lyme disease? What? Nope. Who said that? Well, it's old Lyme, Connecticut. Anybody know the story of how it was discovered? And I don't want to tell you if you know already, so. Well, and wait, if somebody knew, we were sharing. <laughs> don't you believe in sharing? <laughs> Look, you have your computer open, why don't you Google it? No, anyway. Um, um, no, so, so uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, Old Lyme, Connecticut is right on Long Island Sound. It's a really nice community. It's just west, east, uh, sorry, of, uh, east of New Haven. And there are a number of children who were developing juvenile rheumatoid arthritic-like symptoms. And nobody understood why that could possibly be the case. It was very unusual for there to be such a cluster of JRA-type stuff. So ultimately, what major medical school and centers in New Haven, anybody know? Yeah. Yale. 
So ultimately, these children were being sent by their pediatricians to Yale for their pediatric rheumatology and rheumatology evaluations. And either a young attending or a fellow, I'm not sure where he was at in his, in his life, Alan Steer, who you may see on many papers, was at a point in his life professionally where he was basically assigned the goal of figuring out what was going on with these kids. And so ultimately, they, he was able to um, find the presence of a spirochete. Um, we'll go over that in a little bit. Um, and that's how it got its name. Across the Sound on, on Long Island, people were shortly thereafter around the same time uh, observed to be admitted to, through emergency rooms for heart block, uh, a, uh, meningitis, Bell's palsy. They weren't being admitted, but they were being seen with Bell's palsy. Um, and ultimately, um, in a group associated with Stony Brook University Medical Center, Ray Datweiler and John Halpern, Ray being a rheumatologist, John being a neurologist, they furthered our understanding of what was going on and actually showed that how, how easily this affected the nervous system and how this is more of a nervous system disorder or as much of a nervous system disorder than a rheumatologic disorder. Um, but originally, the, 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 the literature was all based in internal medicine and rheumatology um, before what was going on in the nervous system was published. But I think it's kind of an interesting story. Um, so it's a multi-system disorder. It um, occurs not only in the United States, it occurs in Europe. What's very interesting is that it presents differently in, in each of the continents. Um, but it's caused by several borrelial subspecies, generally referred to as Borrelia burgdorferi. It is transmitted by infected ticks, and it's the most common vector-borne infection occurring in endemic areas in the temperate portion of the Northern Hemisphere, um, so Europe as well as the United States. Since 1994, more than a half, so this is much more probably than this, half a million new cases have been reported to the CDC, but many additional cases are believed not to have been reported to the CDC. This spirochete has tropism for skin, joints, the nervous system, and um, heart, and that's where um, the uh, conduction we saw during, I happened to have done my residency at Stony Brook and as a neurology resident, and I can't tell you how many people we saw with meningitis, with um, Lyme-related meningitis, uh, Lyme-related Bell's palsy, Lyme-related heart block, uh, Lyme-related radiculopathy, Lyme-related neuropathy, until the effective treatment regimens were established, or, and it was just, it's just out there. And even to this day, as you probably know, uh, people miss the diagnosis um, and, or treat not early, but later in its course. Um, this can be associated, this being the, the infection, can be associated with substantial mor morbidity late, especially if the infection is not diagnosed and treated promptly. And so early treatment is really, really super important. Early treatment requires early recognition, and that's sometimes where we have an issue, where, where, where it just, either a person doesn't know they're experiencing Lyme disease, um, and they wait, or it's missed, or um, a blood test is not followed up on, not, not, not sent, etc. The causative agent of syphilis, which is the spirochute trepanema pallidum, was noted by Sir William Osler, you know, considered um, the father of modern medicine, the parent, sorry, of modern medicine. 
uh, to, to be the great imitator because it had an ability to mimic a wide variety of different clinical conditions, and we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, but similarly, Borrelia burgdorferi is, or spiral, spiral infection, so Lyme, can also result in such. And so the diagnosis, just because it presents in so many different ways, we've had people come into um, our institution, this is not nearly as common, who appear as if they have demyelinating disease related to MS. So MS is the quintessential demyelinating disease. And we che- everyone has to be checked for Lyme because Lyme can mimic MS. And MS itself is a mimicker. So it's mimicker and mimicker, you're compounding mimicry. And you really have to be, I mean, don't rest on your laurels if you think you're the best Lyme doctor in the world. Please make sure that you've excluded other things or the coexisting of other things. And similarly, if somebody walks in and, um, you know, vitamin B12 deficiency, other, other disorders can mimic some of the uh, symptoms and signs of what could also occur in Lyme disease. The point is be vigilant about broad evaluations because uh, and include Lyme um, when appropriate, but it's often appropriate to screen people. So when it comes to acute pain, in the next couple of, the next section is going to go through acute pain and Lyme disease. So arthralgias are the most common form of pain associated with Lyme. Arthritis occurring early in the disease and affecting one or more joints. Early musculoskeletal Lyme-related pain can involve bursa, muscles, tendons, or bones. It can be fleeting, migratory, um, as is the case for arthralgias in general. And so that may throw people off. It's not going to be necessarily in every joint all the time. It might be localized to one knee initially and, and might throw people off. The x-ray might be fine. It might, the knee might be swollen at that point. People may miss this. The TMJ or temporomandibular joint may be involved in approximately 5% of cases. And pain complaints may mimic that of TMJ dysfunction. So what that might be, if somebody walks in with TMJ pain only, they may wind up getting referred to a, um, a, 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 to a dentist to look for non-Lyme mediated. Um, and so being, being vigilant about being curious about what could be causing this is really important. Knee pain has been reported to occur in up to 60% of North, North American cases of Lyme. So Lyme arthritis can mimic a reactive arthritis, or, or JRA, so um, appropriate blood work does need to be completed in, to arrive at the proper diagnosis. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that everything is Lyme or everything is JRA or another condition. So I already told you the story about uh, how this uh, was called Lyme disease. It was in people who they thought had JRA, but they didn't have JRA. All the serologies were negative. So I don't know how people feel about this. I personally, and I work in a tertiary care setting, um, and I understand that, but even if I see people earlier in their course, I like to be complete just because, even if they have Lyme serologies, I may send some other inflammatory markers to be sure that's the only issue that's going on. I hope you don't think of me as wasteful for doing that because I would challenge you if you did say that by saying if you don't know the whole story, you can't read the whole person. So at least once, you might, you know, you, it might, you might want to be inclusive. Diagnostic testing can be tricky because in endemic areas, um, asymptomatic infection has also been associated with a high rate of seropositivity. So a person might actually be positive but have no symptoms, and then you have to figure out whether or not you're going to treat that person or not. A positive synovial fluid PCR is highly correlated with untreated infection, but synovial fluid PCR remained positive after antibiotic treatment in approximately 30% of Lyme arthritis patients. 
and it did not correlate with recurrent symptoms. So I want to tell you something now in fairness. I do not have a happy ending for this story, meaning that I can't tell you that if this, and there's a clear algorithm in the infectious disease world about how to do this. There's still so much controversy. I don't know if you know this, but the American Academy of Neurology, I believe, was sued by patient groups for their guidelines. <laughs> um, uh, because they were vigilant in their guidelines about Lyme disease uh, to include very detailed serological testing and not to treat if certain things weren't present. And patient groups and Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, when he was attorney general there, got involved in a lawsuit. I don't know where that went, um, but I know that one of my mentors, John Halpern from Stony Brook, um, was part of the panel, and I know that it, was, it gave him a lot of angst to be in that position, trying to use the best available data. Um, and so it is unknown. 30% of people who have, with, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, even after antibiotic treatment, the PCR does remain positive, and it did not correlate with recurrent symptoms. So the symptoms might have been gone in some. So this, this species can infect, infect the peripheral system, nervous system, and acute neuropathic pain will, will be presented as ridiculous, deep aching qualities which is not uncommon in Lyme disease. Uh, acute neuropathic pain is often worse at night. Neuropathic pain in general is worse, or often worse at night and associated with both sensory and motor findings in some. Neuroborreliosis affects about 15% of people with acute Lyme disease. And the classic neurobiolosis triad, the classic triad, is meningitis, radicular neuritis, and cranial neuropathy, usually the most common being uh, cranial nerve 7. One or more of these may occur, and the diagnosis is made based upon a history of exposure. Not all people will remember. We understand that. Typical signs and symptoms, and for neuroborreliosis, it's not only positive serology, but there has to be CSF evidence for inflammatory changes and intrathecal production of specific borrelia antibodies. How many of you in your practice, since many, almost all of you said you treat people with Lyme disease, have sent people or done your own lumbar punctures? What was that? Uh, okay. So um, uh, I live in an endemic area. Uh, I work in an endemic area. And when people present with a certain constellation of findings, we have a very low threshold for doing that. In New York State, um, the state laboratory the Wads at the Wadsworth Center, where all Lyme studies are done, is across the street from us. It's very easy to, to get this done, um, and I'm just. But we do have a low threshold. We do lumbar punctures with a special needle called a Gertie needle. A Gertie needle is a, um, has a sharp introducer to the skin, but has a pencil, a blunt tip, where the hole is in the shaft of the lump of the needle, and that's helpful to reduce the likelihood of post-LP symptoms. And we do it with a special needle. We do it with under uh, sedation if the patient requests it and certainly local anesthetic. And we think it's valuable to have a complete story if someone's present with neurological symptoms and Lyme. So we have a low threshold for doing it, but we try to do it as painlessly and without, with as low risk of um, um, uh, post-LP symptoms as possible. The history of a tick bite uh, and the characteristic skin rash, erythema migraines may or may not be present. That early on, you know, the classic finding of a rash, people got early on in our recognition of Lyme disease in the United States, we realized that 50% of the time in some reports, people didn't have a rash, they didn't remember being bit. In North America, meningitis is more common than is radicular neuritis. In Europe, it's the opposite. 
Please do not. Please feel free to ask me, but I'll give you the answer already. It's not known why that's the case. But in Europe, it's called Bonworth syndrome. If you've ever heard that term, that's a term that's used, and that's what they call um, Lyme. And radicular neuritis, from a neural Lyme point of view, is more common acutely in Europe than in North America, where meningitis is more common. Certainly, if someone has meningitis, headache is going to be um, an acute painful ma manifestation. Facial nerve palsy or seventh cranial nerve can occur with or without pain. Pain often occurs in the uh, mandible uh, where the facial nerve exits uh, the brain as it exits through the mandible from the brainstem. Um, and, and that can be unilateral or bilateral in approximately 60% of cases. Um, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar sac sacral region pain can occur often asymmetrically, so that can throw somebody off that it's only a localized area, so we would naturally start looking for a localized source. Um, so that brings up something that's kind of interesting. In my, in, 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 if we, uh, so I work in a pain center, and people may be referred because they've had all kinds of imaging studies, or they, their imaging studies when they're referred for neck pain or low back pain or thoracic spine pain are all normal. And that's a good time to start thinking of non-structural reasons, and perhaps including Lyme in your workup as well. Um, acute pain may occur within days. It may improve within days, rather, uh, to weeks of antibiotic therapy. And unfortunately, the, frank, the real neurological deficits may take longer to resolve. For approximately 10% of antibiotic-treated Lyme arthritis patients, a form of chronic arthritis may occur. So it's not an uncommon condition. So 10% is a big number. Uh, this chronic arthritis is often unresponsive to additional treatment with antibiotic therapy. Um, it, not always, but it's often. And there are huge debates in the medical literature revolving around whether or not the persistent pain is due to persistent joint infection with Borrelia burgdorferi or not. And some evidence suggests that there may be an immunologic basis for the ongoing pain, not a direct infectious basis. And that makes it very hard to sort out what to do about that. So proposed immunologic mechanisms of, of treatment-resistant Lyme arthritis include cross-reaction between specific anti-Borrelia antibodies and normal host synovial proteins, um, as well as through cytokine-mediated localized inflammation. So that can also occur in synovial joints. Several studies have noted that persistent joint symptoms associated with Lyme disease were independently associated with HLA types DR4, so human leukocyte antigen types DR4 and DR2. It's a small study with autoantibodies to a specific lipoprotein associated with the Borrelia species. Um, and that has not led to any, specific, any additional treatment um, that I'm aware of. I could not find any treatment based upon that. Um, but it's not, since it's often not associated with um, active infection or reinfection or reactivation of infection, people have been looking for why does it occur then. Current recommendations suggest early diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease with antibiotics is vital for the successful treatment of Lyme arthritis, and that goes back to early recognition and treatment. NSAIDs, in general, are the recommended treatment for chronic antibiotic-resistant Lyme arthritis. There are not a great number of studies that support that. Low dose, uh, so it's interesting, this is really interesting, because now, many years later, um, Alan Steer, who is credited for um, being, as a young investigator, the discoverer of, you know, the organizer of symptoms around Lyme disease. Uh, it's his work now in recognizing, in a recently published chapter that he wrote with uh, other people, 
he has been very um, interested in targeting immune mechanisms, at least empirically with certain medications, to treat the immune media or to, uh, the, to treat the reactive or the persistent Lyme arthritic symptoms in people who were adequately treated theoretically with Lyme, with antibiotics for their Lyme. So um, low-dose methotrexate has been used, um, according to Dr. Steer, and Plaquenil, which is hydroxychloroquine, at 400 milligrams per day has been advocated as well. Um, in severe refractory instances, TNF inhibitors have been used, and the, the two that have been used and published are Interocept or uh, uh, Adalimumab. And severe persistent Lyme arthritis pain may need to be treated with invasive procedures such as synovectomy in very rare instances. Um, but I think it's interesting that the people are targeting the immune system now. People who present with persistent arthralgias in the settings of, or signs of a multi-system disorder such as headache, fatigue, cognitive impairment, chronic pain, need to be carefully evaluated for Lyme disease. Um, their acute sy symptoms may have been missed. Uh, Post-treatment Lyme syndrome, which some have suggested is triggered by prior Lyme infection, that's controversial, um, has been one of the diagnoses considered for such patients, and, uh, um, as has fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, the importance of making an accurate diagnosis to differentiate between late manifestations of untreated Lyme disease versus fibromyalgia-like complaints in a person who's been adequately treated in the past. Uh, and in part, that relates to avoiding unnecessary exposure to prolonged antibiotic therapy. So you don't want to treat somebody with ongoing antibiotics if, if um, it's clear that that person doesn't have active Lyme disease. A recent panel convened by the Infectious Disease Society of America concluded that the risk of prolonged treatment with antibiotics and treatment-resistant forms of Lyme disease outweighs the potential benefit for most patients. That's exactly what the American Academy of Neurology said as well. This did, uh, w this did create some uproar because there are some who advocate continued treatment with antibiotics. But the panel really, uh, you know, of course, in this day and age, we're very concerned about overtreatment with antibiotics, and they felt that there wasn't evidence to support prolonged treatment with antibiotics in people with resistant forms of Lyme disease um, unless you could demonstrate an active infection. And that being noted, um, there are other published clinical trials that note that some people who are so treated with prolonged therapy do improve. So that's why I said up front, don't shoot the messenger. It's, very, it's still very confusing about what to do. Um, three to, so in, in a study three to five years after antibiotic treatment of neuroborreliosis, 29% of patients continue to complain of persistent neurologic symptoms, including headache and other chronic pain. Chronic neuropathic pain has been associated with Lyme neuroborreliosis and has frequently been described as ridiculous in nature or associated with unpleasant sensory disturbances or paresthesias. In some studies, corticosteroids were used in a handful of patients to treat these symptoms, but results including harm, you know, that's a benefit and harm have not been consistent. And of course, gabapentin is this all-around utility player for chronic pain. So in one small study involving 10 patients, 9 out of 10 people with chronic neuropathic pain after Lyme infection responded to treatment with gabapentin. Doses were not, the doses were not in, that, in that report. It was a case series, and the doses were all over the place. They were not standardized. So a European study has demonstrated that once daily oral doxycycline, 200 milligrams per day, was not inferior to once daily IV ceftriaxone, sorry for the typo, two grams, in improving overall clinical signs and symptoms of European neuroborreliosis at four months. That was a randomized trial. They were randomized to either group. Um, chronic pain was one of the symptoms in that study. 
that was evaluated and according to the authors occurred in 29 out of the 118 patients were included in the trial and so there were, this is one little trial that, uh, that, that does suggest that maybe um, uh, treatment can improve pain. Other evidence supports that untreated or suboptimally treated patients with Lyme disease who develop later onset chronic painful radicular neuro neuropathy may in fact respond to uh, antibiotic therapy, including pain. So this is all over the place in the literature, not well done studies, and really not any recent studies that would um, help us for today. In the United States, Intravenous ceftriaxone is the preferred antibiotic for the treatment of neuroborreliosis. This has been, um, so it, here's an interesting uh, uh, mechanism of ceftriaxone, which has been demonstrated to increase the expression of glutamate transporters at nerve terminals involved in mediating pain transmission. So ceftriaxone therefore may demonstrate non-antibiotic mediated effects that may be related to pain. So when people are, I mean, just for conjecture, are, if, if there is an inactive infection and our patients who are treated for prolonged Lyme symptoms with IV ceftriaxone, so they feel better. Since glutamate drives pain transmission, could this be why? Can anyone think of another antibiotic that we use or have used in the past um, that we use that has glial? I'm not saying this is why this works, but that has glial inhibitory. Uh, exactly, minocycline. Um, and so we use it. We use it low doses. Is used now as an analgesic. So it's interesting that um, the, the, the Lyme antibiotic uh, may have other actions that may inhibit pain transmission. So in a randomized study in which patients were treated with IV ceftriaxone for 10 weeks, pain was significantly reduced in the ceftriaxone-treated group at 12 and 24 weeks compared to not being treated. So it was actually a durable, they were only treated for 10 weeks, but the pain was still reduced by 24 weeks. So just another couple of uh, uh, thoughts about Lyme. Uh, these are some kind, uh, this is a German study um, that asked the question, does pain lead to initial hospitalization for patients with neuroborreliosis? So this is in Europe. Um, and the question was, is this pain what drives them? So there was a retrospective study completed in, in Germany, which evaluated the pivotal neurological complaints and signs that led to hospital admission only patients who met diagnostic criteria of intraspinal antibiotic production against Borrelia burgdorferi was, were included. So these people, therefore, had spinal taps. Um, 68 patients were identified. Cranial nerve palsy was the most frequent neurological abnormality, uh, which, and cranial nerve 7 is the most frequently uh, affected, associated with emission followed by painful radiculitis in a quarter of them, encephalitis, myelitis, and meningitis in that order. And for patients with a combination of symptoms, back pain was the first symptom followed by headache. So in a subset of people, pain was the first uh, symptom. This is a case report of cranial neuropathy and severe pain due to early disseminated Borrelia burgdorferi infection. This also was in Europe. It's called Banworth syndrome. There's a 60-year-old male who was presented, who presented to the emergency room um, in the summer with right cranial nerve stem palsy and debilitating pain in his scalp and spine. Prior evaluation was without findings, um, bef bef uh, 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 and he worked outside. He had gone to his primary care doctor first. He worked outside, lived in the upper Midwest. Um, so I'm sorry. So this is a Banworth syndrome is, 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 can, has been reported in the United States as well. He worked outside and lived in the upper Midwest in Minnesota. 
Further evaluation in the emergency room demonstrated positive CSF, positive Lyme serology, and an abnormal MRI. He had enhancement of multiple cranial nerves bilaterally. He was treated with 28 days of IV ceftriaxone that was successful. Um, and um, facial necrosis is more commonly seen in US-associated bandware syndrome, which is less common in general in the United States than in Europe, than in reported European instances where radicular findings are much more common. Um, this is an interesting, this is so a group of uh, people who study small fiber neuropathy at Mass General Hospital. Um, looked at association of small fiber neuropathy and post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. So this was a single center retrospective study evaluating patients with post-treatment Lyme disease. Skin biopsies were performed for the assessment of epidermal nerve fiber density, which is the way to make, um, uh, uh, the preferred way of, of making a diagnosis of small fiber neuropathy these days. Sweat gland nerve fiber density is an ancillary and an auxiliary way of making a diagnosis that was looked for. Functional autonomic testing, autonomic nervous system testing, valsalva remover, and tilt tests were, were performed. There were 10 participants, five men, five women. All participants were positive for Lyme infection per CDC criteria, so these were confirmed. And all, all patients had abnormal uh, epidermal fiber nerve densities, so reduced epidermal fiber nerve densities or abnormal sweat glands. For those of you not familiar with the diagnosis of, um, of uh, uh, small fiber neuropathy, the one, there are two findings from skin biopsy that can prove the diagnosis, can be make the diagnosis positive. One is a reduction in intraepidermal nerve fiber densities. The second, if that's normal, um, Chris Gibbons, who is a neurologist in, at Beth Israel Medical Center, um, has determined and, and shown that sweat gland density is reduced in people with small fiber neuropathy compared to normal. And so abnormal sweat gland nerve, uh, uh, densities are, can also be diagnostic. So generally what a lab does is it looks at intraepidermal nerve fiber density first, and if that's normal, it'll look at sweat gland density. Um, so uh, of the 10, 9 out of 10 had abnormal epidermal fiber nerve density, so reduced nerve fiber densities, um, or, um, and, and abnormal sweat glands, and 5 out of 10, uh, I'm sorry, I can't read my own stuff. Um, 9 out of 10, 90% had reduced epidermal nerve fiber densities, 50% had abnormal sweat gland densities, both were abnormal in 40%. So a machine learning um, data acquisition strategy was applied to electronic health <coughs> records to better understand the course and the heterogeneity of Lyme disease, and post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome was highly associated with chronic pain in this. Um, and treatment with doxycycline demonstrated a protective association for symptoms of Lyme disease, including backache. And that's, that means that this machine learning um, uh, evaluation, uh, trying to help people predict trajectories of Lyme disease, showed that if you treated people early with doxycycline, you are much less likely to have backache. But if you got to the point of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, it was likely that that person would be experiencing chronic pain. Okay, so... Um, now, move. The, I, I realized earlier today that this slide was out of order, so the last Lyme disease slide is um, this orthopedic evaluation from, um, published in an, a sports uh, medicine journal. Um, this was a clinical review designed to evaluate Lyme arthritis as a post-operative complication. So this is four reported cases that were reviewed of post-operative Lyme arthritis in an orthopedic patient. The authors reported that there were no guidelines regarding the evaluation and treatment of this. 
And the concern was these, this occurred in people who already had a known history of Lyme disease and had been treated. And, they, and then after a, a, a surgical procedure involving a joint, a person developed Lyme disease in that joint. Um, so there was concern that somehow there was spread of the organism to a prosthetic joint for patients who lived in an endemic area that may have known they were still with the infection, and they recommended referral, if that happens, to an ID specialist. So going back, syphilis, just switching gears, the, another spirochetal infection is associated with pain. Many of you, I, don't, I haven't seen syphilis for a long time, but we still see it. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease caused by trypanema pallidum. Human beings are the only host. Syphilitic infection of the nervous system results in the most chronic insidious meningeal inflammatory process that we know of. Invasion of the central nervous system occurs early in the course of untreated syphilis. And of late, there's been a drastic increase worldwide in the incidence of syphilis, especially in urban areas. In 1999, the WHO estimated that worldwide there were approximately 12 million new cases of syphilis that occurred among adults. In the United States, the number of cases reported annually rose from fewer than 10,000 in 1956 to more than 50,000 in 1990. This rise in incidence has been greatest among the underprivileged heterosexuals, um, uh, blacks, and urban dwellers, and has occurred in New York, California, and the Southwest. And the CDC has said the burden from neurosyphilis is unknown because national reporting of the disease is still incomplete. The risk of neurosyphilis is two to three times greater in Caucasians than in blacks, uh, black people. Um, it's twice as common in males as in females. It's contracted most often during earlier years of sexual activity. And sometimes not until decades later does the disease express itself clinically. And so it can, it can present with any of its myriad signs and symptoms um, within the spectrum of progressive chronic infection. Remember, it's a great masquerader. It is, has also been associated with use of crack cocaine. And um, so it's a risk factor and added risk factors accounting for the substantial increase in syphilis among, um, um, have been reported by the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Um, and it's believed to be uh, being gay or bisexual uh, as a male has been reported to be an increased risk factor. Symptoms of neurosyphilis include personality change, including cognitive and or behavioral impairment in 33%, um, ataxia, so unsteadiness in 28%, stroke in 23%, ophthalmologic symptoms such as blurred vision, reduced color perception, impaired acuity, photophobia in 17%, urinary symptoms, bladder incontinence, for example, in 17%, lightning pains in various areas, various organ locations, abdomen, larynx, 10%, headache in 10%, dizziness in 10%, hearing loss in 10%, and seizures in 7%. Loss of reflex signs and symptoms, signs rather of neurosyphilis include loss of reflexes in 50%, sensory impairment, so decreased proprioception and loss of vibratory sense because the bug likes to affect posterior columns in your spinal cord, vertigo, sensory ataxia, which goes along with decreased proprioception. Anybody know what the Romberg sign is? You know what it is? What was that? What is it? Do you know who Romberg was? What was that? Who was Romberg? No, he was not a neurologist. He, he actually was a neuropathologist who described the sign in himself. He suffered from tertiary syphilis. And so, uh, and it's actually lost the posterior columns on neuropathology. He was a neuropathologist. 
So he actually described the condition in himself. Um, pupillary changes occur in, uh, so the sensory impairment occurs in almost half people who are evaluated. 43% of people have pupillary changes, so it can be different in pupillary sizes. The Ardra Robertson uh, pupil, skewed deviation, cranial neuropathies in just a little over a third. Dementia, mania, or paranoia in 35%. The Romberg sign in 24%. A charcoal joint, which means they don't feel the joint, in 13%. Loss of muscle tone, 10%. Optic atrophy, in 7%. Acute syphilitic meningitis can, of course, be painful uh, because meningitis can be painful. So people with acute syphilitic meningitis have signs of meningeal irritation, which is a stiff, painful neck, headache, nausea, and vomiting. Fever is unusual. Cranial neuropathies are common. The 7th, 8th, 6th, and 2nd are affected in that order. The meningitis itself may be self-limiting, but the untreated active infection, so it's important to recognize it, can continue and then be re-expressed later as more severe form of neurosyphilis. And also, um, we check for syphilis, of course, when patients present to the emergency room with uh, transverse myelitis, and acute syphilitic transverse myelitis has been reported. Meningovascular neurosyphilis um, first usually manifests with the typical features of acute meningitis, um, and then it also includes hydrocephalus, cranial neuropathies, and formations of gummas. These are leptomeningeal granulomas. It's a, so a gumma is a well-circumscribed avascular mass of granulation tissue. Usually it's extra-axial and dural-based, so it can be a mass. It's like a mass-like uh, appearance on imaging. It results from a cell-mediated immune response to the causative agent. Uh, the cortex is most often involved, secondary to invasion and direct extension, and therefore, if you're pressing, if you've got this mass pressing on the cortex, um, seizures due to this irritative focus may develop. Um, onset of this stage of syphilis, of neurosyphilis, occurs on average seven years after the initial infection. So it just hangs out and comes back. Tabes dorsalis is a slowly progressive parenchymous degenerative disease. Um, involving the posterior columns and posterior roots of the spinal cord. So um, signs and symptoms include loss of pain sensation, loss of reflexes, impairment of vibratory and position sense, so that's where the Romberg sign comes in, progressive ataxia, urinary incontinence, loss of sexual function, but it can be very, 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 very painful. So really, lightning-like pain all over the place, localized, generalized, suddenly appearing and then disappearing. Pain is actually often an early symptom and requires treatment, and the severe painful crisis can, can actually start after stress or exposure to, 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 um, um, to uh, uh, an extreme situation without any other parent precipitant in approximately 90% of people. Visceral crises occur in approximately 15% of patients, and this can include excruciating epigastric pain and, and terrible nausea and vomiting. Syphilis of the lumbar spine has been reported as well. Um, this is where tertiary syphilis can manifest as gummas, not of the cortex, but of the spine. It's rare, but they've been reported. So in the case report, a 61-year-old patient with complaints of worsening pain and numbness for four weeks in the lower extremities was noted. An MRI demonstrated severe narrowing of the L4-5 disc space, as well as a mass of 4.3 times 1.8 millimeters by 1.6, located immediately behind the a vertebral body at L4, it was a positive RPR noted, and the patient's function improved dramatically after they were surgically fixed. And it's another example of syphilis of the lumbar spine. 40, uh, there's a 44-year-old male that experienced low back pain for six months, presented with progressive radiating pain for one week, 
An osteolytic lesion was noted at the L4 and 5 vertebral bodies. Serological studies were positive for syphilis. And in addition to surgical uh, debridement and antibiotic treatment, uh, a, a in instrumentation and a bone fusion was performed extensively from L3 to S1 in order to treat and debride. They destabilized the spine, so they had to do the fusion, and the symptoms were better after surgery. So um, it's disappointing me to, to speak with you today because I don't have a lot of treatment, specific treatment uh, questions that I can answer um, um, because there haven't been a lot of formal studies, but I can do my best if you have questions about what I would do in situations. But both Lyme disease and syphilis are associated with acute and chronic pain. Both Lyme disease and syphilis, as examples of spirochetes, may at times be challenging to diagnose, leading to delayed recognition and treatment. So early treatment does lead to better outcomes in both. Persistent symptoms, including pain, can occur even after appropriate treatment, especially with Lyme disease. And in, this, in that setting, the pathophysiology is still not certain. Um, and I guess the take-home message finally is these, maybe these would be less villainous if we made the diagnosis sooner. So I'll stop there um, and see if you have any questions. We have some time for questions or answers. Hopefully, I'll have answers. Um, but there's not a whole lot of data about specific treatment mechanisms. So any questions? Yes. No. Yeah. What? With what kind of Absolutely. Well, 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 it's a good question. So if somebody comes in and, and if somebody, so to answer your question, the question is do I re, do routinely check for these things, uh, these conditions in someone with radicular symptoms? What I would do, would say if somebody comes in with an L5 radiculopathy and back pain and an examination that's consistent with that, you know, so weakness of muscles innervated by the L5 nerve root on the appropriate side and it has been an adequate period of time of conservative management and, and before or, you know, I'm, not jumping into anything more aggressive yet, uh, and um, an MRI is done, and there is a huge disc impingement or a large enough disc impingement sitting on the appropriate L5 nerve root, I probably wouldn't jump to this unless there were other associated. I may screen somebody in history taking to try to see if there's another reason. On the other hand, not uncommonly, people have radicular complaints and they don't have imaging findings that correlate with them. So in that setting, I do do serological testing in general. Uh, you, you know, it's one of those things, that, uh, I, I probably have said this at other pain week meetings, WNL means not only with the normal limbs, but we never looked. And um, I'm struck how many people, more than I ever thought I would ever see, have um, B12 deficiency, uh, other conditions that are associated with neuropathic qualities that um, you may not see anemia in somebody like that first. So I do have a low threshold for digging deeper if it's obviously not straightforward. So not all the time, but many times. Other questions or comments? Yes? It sounds like you have a similar approach to the chronic widespread alpha-alpha fibromyalgia kind of patients. Do the normal workup and then you're kind of lowish threshold for the survival of Lyme disease? Yeah, well, Lyme disease is one of the known causes of chronic widespread pain. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. No, no, I think in that situation, that's a much easier question to answer. Um, because in that, if they're, you know, um, I, I, I'm going to say this in a straightforward way, and it's not meant, you know, we, people come into every, every one of our offices in different ways through different paths. 
And so somehow, sometimes people have never been evaluated and they're coming to a tertiary care neurology pain center, you know, not ever having a simple blood test for chronic widespread pain because maybe they didn't go to, they've never gone to a doctor and they wind up being referred by the emergency room at an urgent care center. So I may be their primary care doctor. And so they may never have had any of this done. I happen to think that most referring primary care providers have done things like that usually before they refer. Well, I live in a non-endemic area. Oh, OK. Right. So you may not. Right. right. Exactly. So that's why I wanted to answer your question in a way that was sensitive to the fact that we all practice in different settings, and patients don't follow a certain path all the time. So. Do you do that? What's that? Do you do you do that? Is it can I do you uh, okay? Do you ever test them to see and they're negative? Yeah. And can you feel comfortable with your, you know, are uh, you with the lab doing the testing and? Um, I, I don't live in Maine, so I don't have patients from Maine, but um, just to be clear. Um, so I have a patient like that. Um, and I just saw her last week before uh, uh, with her mother present. She's in her 40s, and she is seen by um, a, a Lyme sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-specialist guru in the Hudson Valley of New York. Uh, if you know Hudson Valley, New York is a gorgeous, gorgeous area of New York State in between Albany and, and, and New York City. Um, and he does not feel that she has active Lyme disease. He has sent, he likes, he prefers certain labs in Germany, not even in California, so the, the other way. Um, and everything's been negative. But she's insistent and goes to see him regularly, doesn't believe me. So I decided he had never. She has all these neurological symptoms. Um, he had never, and she was referred to me for the painful symptoms. And so the first thing I did in that setting, she got lots of pain in her neck and she had some tingling. I said, has anyone ever done an MRI of your neck? No. I wanted to make sure she didn't have a cord compressive lesion or a syrinx or something like that. She didn't. And I said, if that's, if that's normal, and uh, um, she had had recent blood work. I don't have to repeat anything to your point. She really had been exhaustively evaluated. I said, um, I think it's important for me to be able to be advise you to see um, whether or not your spinal fluid shows any sign of an active Lyme issue, smoldering or otherwise. And so under fluoroscopic guidance, because she didn't want to be awake during the procedure, we offered it either way. Our radiologists are fantastic in being open-minded about helping us. Um, she had a spinal tap, and everything came back crystal clear, zero, perfect, you know, not even a, L a cell, no elevated protein, nothing. I do, do IgG index, I look at clonal bands, I look at cytology. If I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna subject somebody or ask someone to undergo that test, I don't wanna have to do it twice. It's not fair to that person. That being said, um, she still insists she has active Lyme disease. What, am I, what can you say to that person? Other than, um, um, I'd be happy to talk to your infection. I mean, I don't know what to say. So I, I suggest that she go back to the ID specialist and 
But that, I didn't mean to punt on it. I just didn't know what to say to her otherwise. Well, that's a little bit different. That's a little bit different. So I'd probably call the, the Lyme specialist and say, this is what's been reported. You want to empirically treat her with doxycycline for you know, a month and see what happens. You want me to send her to you. I'm very old-fashioned, um, and I, I love the phone to speak to colleagues, and so because I think you know, um, I can't answer everything. And so that's what I would do, probably. Sure. Yes. Sure. Sure. That's a great question. So not specifically because it helps Lyme, but because low-dose naltrexone is a really great um, potential tool to use in refractory from a pain from many different sources. Um, you know, there's, there's been a study at Stanford that's demonstrated its benefit in fibromyalgia patients. It was, an open, it was a pilot kind of open-label study. Um, there have been reports, of course, of CRPS and other conditions. So I, I don't see a reason, if not otherwise contraindicated, to try that. Have you found that they're more sensitive to low-dose naltrexone than other chronic diseases? No, but I haven't really been looking for that. Have you? Okay, I figure that's why you asked me. <laughs> so where do you practice and what kind of, how often do you use it? What doses do you use? So that, that's good because that's, that's a relatively low dose and, and, and side effects occur commonly so not everyone can, can actually take it, right? Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. That's that. So, and so, given that um, you, that we are this is a, a meeting focused on people like us who actually see patients, that was probably the most important comment that was made in the last fifty minutes. So, thank you very, very much. <laughs> and on that, I'll say, have a great day, and see you later. <laughs>